Welcome everyone, you're listening to Daniel here on the T-Report. Today I will get an opportunity to speak with public historian Elliot Kim. Our subject will be the topic of critical race theory. Before we begin the conversation, Elliot, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey D, um, thanks again for having me back. Uh, always good to, to be here and having these fun conversations and hopefully folks find them, you know, interesting, entertaining, hopefully informative in some way. But yeah, you know, I got a background in labor, community, um, student activism and organizing, and I've been teaching um, U.S. history survey courses at uh, San Bernardino Valley College for the past, um, uh, since 2014. And yeah, um, writer and all that fun stuff and got to co-host a radio show with you for a long time. So yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, I know. I'm excited to talk to you because I mean, we go way, way back. Um, got a chance to be on on airways for a minute as well as just, you know, kind of record and, and more importantly, just talk. I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about our dialogue is that like I'm always able to kind of find a space where I, I feel I can work through things, you know, like there's a lot of stuff, I think, in general, that most of us are carrying around questions, thoughts, directions, and it's kind of sometimes difficult to find a space where you can kind of feel safe to just say, you know, I'm a little bit confused, or I'm not really sure how this works out. And, and I was hoping today I could kind of uh, take you up on that opportunity to kind of work through this question on critical race theory. Um, I think most people are, are aware it's been a term that I was familiar with it in the academic circle for a couple of years, but I always thought it was really um, esoteric, just a really call special, specialized term that not a lot of people mm. use. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing it on TV, I'm seeing a newspaper, <laughs> people are talking about it. And it confused me, like, how did this get out? You know, when uh, President Trump, number 45, talked about it, I was like, it came out of his mouth. That's ridiculous. I can't believe he used critical race theory as a term. And I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on what what's going on on your perspective, specifically, I think, uh, as you are someone that also has to deal with it as an educator, as a teacher, um, in different fields. I mean, I don't teach history, you do, but I also teach a field that is being highlighted as a place of danger, you know, so I do education uh, classes, anthropology and ethnic studies classes. And oh yeah, we're all feeling this pressure of like, well, is the discussion about critical race theory something that I should worry about? So I'll uh, begin with, with you. Um, what are your thoughts on what's been going on? Oh man, it's a rich conversation. Um, yeah, no, thanks for asking, man. Um, look forward to hearing what you what your take on this too, because I feel like because you have you have a background in law, right? Which is what the, the discipline that the term technically academically speaking is referencing. So I look forward to hearing what you have to say about it too. Um, just from a historical perspective, it just makes me think of I feel like this is just a classic example of kind of red baiting, but like in the 21st century, if that makes sense. And so the people who who are screaming about who are all of a sudden mysteriously overnight just very upset by this notion of critical race theory oh my gosh you know the sky is falling um it just it, it reminds me of you know mccarthyism and just in just another shape and form and so because i feel like what they're what folks who are upset about that notion of critical race theory whatever it may mean in their minds um i feel like those are folks who are really just angry or upset in some form or fashion for 
whatever a variety of possible reasons about struggles for social and economic, political, cultural justice, right? Um, and a telling of history that is full, right? In depth and breadth and that speaks to those struggles, right? And I feel like that's really what is at the heart of all this. Uh, pretty obviously, right? If you're at all familiar with these kinds of things and these back, these kinds of back and forth and, you know, the in, in the public realm, right? And in, uh, in, in media and all that fun stuff. So I feel like that's really at the heart of it is people are just upset that times are changing and have changed with um, Black Lives Matter and Me, Me Too protests. Um, just, you know, a couple recent examples you know, Occupy Wall Street and uh, the Arab Spring going back a couple more years. And these are all in the spectrum of these long standing struggles for social economic justice in a variety of forms and forums. And I feel like that's really at the heart of it is people are just like, they, some folks are just really upset about the fact that they don't, they maybe don't get to be as racist or classist or misogynist or whatever as as the mainstream used to tolerate, right? And I feel like that's really at the heart of it. It's kind of a reactionary response to some very small gains in the realm of the fight for social and social economic justice, I think. And um, and yeah, you know, the the former, the most recent outgoing president um, uh, did not help, <laughs> did not help the, the situation. And obviously I think got a kick people like that um, for, again, for a variety of reasons. I, I feel like on some level, someone like that really just kind of gets a kick out of fanning the flames, right? And kind of feeding this um, proverbial red meat to their, to their followers, right? Which are not, which are a minority of the population in the United States and around the world. And I think that's important to note too, but um, I don't know, that's my hot take on it. I just think it's classic red baiting and a lot of empty rhetoric in my mind, but it was interesting. Like you, like you were saying, I was confused when it all popped off. I was like, where is this coming from? <laughs> But what do you what do you what's your take on it, man? I think that's where where I, I'm feeling more comfortable now. As you mentioned, red baiting. When I first heard anything that was, I guess, national was that uh, number forty five had put a restriction on federal uh, funds going to any agency program or event that used critical race theory. Right. Which is like, how, how do you even enforce that? <laughs> well, that's what I thought was hilarious because at the time we were in a program, I don't recall which one, but it was interesting because I remember being on a meeting and people said, hey, be very careful what, what you're going to be covering. If it states critical race theory, um, we may kind of have to defend our position in terms of federal <laughs> funds. And it seems so ridiculous because I was like, wow, this doesn't make any sense because it would be equivalent to being told you can't use quantum physics theory, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're going to do a science class, you're like, right. but I'm teaching, you know, your basic um, science class. And they're like, yeah, yeah. but we're, we're really like boycotting quantum physics. And then you're like, what about <laughs> Newtonian physics? Oh, that one's okay. You're safe there. Anyway, that, that to me right. is how I felt. I was like really confused. Yeah. I was like, wow, they're splitting academic <laughs> fields. That's and, wild. Yeah. But, but I missed the boat at, on that day because mm. I wasn't what you're saying. Like this is red baiting. It's just a, it's a coded way of mm. getting to something much deeper. Um, right. And where I am now is that I, I'm more of this understanding because um, I spent a lot of time running around. Yeah. Just, 
trying to correct, and that's not the right word, correct, but I felt like everyone was using critical race theory wrong. Right, right. Like, that's not what critical race theory is. You know, for example, uh, someone said, oh, critical race theory is about teaching kids to hate white people (laughs) or hate themselves. And I was like, no, Uh, that's not really how it works. You know, um, because the theory itself is really not, at least how I think of it, there is a, uh, a couple, well, actually maybe it helps a little bit to backtrack a little bit how I think about the theory. And it is, mm. a, as you mentioned earlier, it is a, a perspective as a theoretical model. That's the thing to me. It's like when I compare it to like the theory on con- quantum physics, it's that it's a whole realm of analysis to make sense of the world you inhabit. Uh-huh. And if you have the tools, you still experience the same things, but you're justification and your reasoning and your understanding for why they happen is different. And that's totally. where I stand on, on, on critical race theory, that critical race theory, I feel kind of like my numbers are a little bit off, but I always say it's like somewhere in the seventies and it is based out of the legal context of young legal scholars looking at the law and trying to make sense of why is it that these things are happening to racialized bodies of color? Because race as a unit, as an idea is not just exclusive to people of color. However, there's a different experience versus, you know, on, on what part of the category you exist in. And the, the racialized white body is different than the racialized non-white body in its experience in the United States. So it, it started to really think about, like, what is happening here within the law and the right. the... The cheat code that I use is that people before that were using the law. I mean, I I think about even like the civil rights movement of Martha the King Jr. Like the law was not a domain that people didn't engage. I mean, it was right at the center. Mm -hmm. However, there was something that was stated differently within critical race theory. There's a couple of tenants or anchors columns of it. One of them is that race is a social construct and they're not the ones who invented there's a lot of other fields that had already built race and social construct, anthropology being one of them. However, they highlight it and they go, it's an invention. And then they take another f- step further and it, it argues the legal system is one of the mechanisms that supports the invention. In fact, I feel comfortable saying it's going to be given the primary role. Like you I, cannot have yeah. race without a legal structure to give it body, to make it exist and then it argues a couple things you know that the the very notion of the nation state and its structures are not neutral they are embedded in a racialized inequality you know so it starts making sense uh in that way and as i said earlier it does not at that point i've just said two things it has nothing to speak about hatred it doesn't say you should hate yourself that's it's just saying Hey, the idea of race is an invention. And then if you ask, well, if it's an invention, how does it feel so real? They answer it all because of the legal structures that make it real. Yeah, that's that's a good description. That's my that's my understanding of like where the specific term. And again, those you know, young scholars in the 70s, it was just I think it's important to note that post-apartheid, post the end of de jure, right, by law, um, segregation in this country. 
um, the 70s is the first time people were able to say this in the mainstream academic realm, right? And again, these are like you're saying, not new ideas. <laughs> you know what I mean? These are hard, like it wasn't in the 1970s that some people were all of a sudden like, hey, gosh, gee willikers, you know, the legal system really plays a big part in uh, institutional racism. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, but yeah, it was, um, that was my understanding of it exactly. Is that it's a term used to describe the structural, it's a structural and institutional critique of a, a, stru a structural critique of the institutionalization of racism and the racialized experience on bodies with more melanin, right? Vis-a-vis, -vis, right, through the law, right? That was my understanding of where it came from. But again, it's such a, it's such a generic term and so critical race theory. It could mean so many different things. And people are coming at it like this, well, what's this? And I've had, you know, random conversations out with friends and, you know, out in public places and this and the other thing, like and with friends of friends and like, you know, I was hanging out at my friend's art store and the guy who's working there was, you know, not really, you know, super into it. It's like, well, let's break this down a minute, you know? And in, so in my mind, I hear critical race theory and I'm all like, well, the most broad generalization, the, the most broad, most general thing that comes to my mind is like, well, you're just talking about race honestly and critically and theorizing about it like it's what we all do in the humanities if you don't pardon my french you're probably a racist piece of on some level i mean i'm just being this is obviously my perspective you know what i mean but like if you cannot or refuse if for whatever reason if you cannot or if you refuse to acknowledge the institutional nature of like the structural and institutional nature of things like racism race and racism in the human experience as social constructs then if you refuse to if you refuse to acknowledge that for whatever reason or just cannot grasp that then obviously in my mind something else is going on right and so i feel like really when it gets down to it the whole this whole disc or this this sudden discourse on like the dangers of critical race theory and it's teaching white people to hate themselves and but it's frightening to see that kind of even just the, the I didn't, I, for some reason, I remember now that you mentioned it, but it had, I had kind of blanked on the fact that the former administration had cut federal funding for, I mean, that is just so extreme. I mean, that's like, that's McCarthyism 101, you know, that's like, that's suppression of dissent, and whatever, whatever you want to call it, you know what I mean? It's just, it's authoritarian nonsense. And so it's surprising to me, but I'm like, oh yeah, um, they actually, like, they, they actually, they actually did that, you know, but again, it's just, I think that speaks to just like what's really going on here. You know what I mean? And so I feel like, again, coming back to like, I feel like it's, it's a very sort of histrionic kind of knee jerk reaction by, a, a, by what less than a third of the population actually, right. Who holds these views according to myriad studies um, to the idea that we're actually talking about these things honestly for once you know, or we're talking about them more honestly. And it's been sort of a, it's been sort of a build, you know, I mean, it was thanks to, how far do we want to go back? But these struggles are age old, you know what I mean? And so like, even just, and just looking at those couple of decades from the forties, the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, it was thanks to each successive, each previous generation doing the hard work and forcing the doors open and by literally through sacrifice of blood and bone and sweat and tear and toil, broadening the parameters of what we're allowed to discuss in the mainstream, you know? And so I feel like we, some of this conversation the other day too, but um, I think we often forget just how recent a lot of this stuff is, how current, how we are, how much we are still in the, in those moments, in that moment, historically speaking. 
And as much progress, however you want to gauge it, has been made in a lot of ways. Um, in a lot of ways, it, not a lot of progress has been made. But I think, I think you know, just in terms of like de jure by law versus de facto segregation and apartheid, we got rid of apartheid. You know, in, in, in as minimal and as minimal as it can be, it is still fundamental voting rights. I know it's not the most popular thing to talk about in some more some of the more activisty circles I move in. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't vote. I'm like, if voting didn't matter, then why did so many people have to fight and die so hard? You know, fight for so long and literally sacrifice their lives to get this very small basic thing. Um, I feel like we, as much progress has been made, we are often and I think, you know, these, these power structures, structures that we're talking about, social construction of race, class, gender, things like that, the powers that be, such as they are, folks who benefit from the continuation of those structures, those dynamics, those relationships, they benefit from, from propagating the notion that it's, it's similar to, you know, the 90s. We live in a post-racial society. Nothing to see here, folks. It's all with civil rights happened, and we wrapped it up all nicely with the bow, and we're good big as a bunch of baloney it's just straight bullshit just like heaping steaming piles of bullshit is what that was you know but i feel like right and so there's people who benefit from white supremacy and the continuation of, of just straight sexism and everything like that they want us to think that it's all figured out and we're good and there's nothing more to talk about or think about or hear about um and so i feel like we we really are conditioned in a lot of ways at least in the mainstream of this country where people are very politically inactive and apathetic and not all that well informed compared to you know a comparable global average or whatever i feel like we get a lot of misinformation to make us think that we're a lot further along in human data development or whatever you want to call it and in human in treating each other fairly basically um, as humans as full human beings feel like we, we get a lot of misinformation to condition us and to get us to think that we're a lot further along than we really are. And something like this, like, you know, uh, the federal administration, executive branch cutting funding and, and, it, and having a chilling effect, even in your own you know, teaching experience, like, it just speaks to how much further we have to go, if that makes sense. I've been kind of going all over the place here, but ultimately, right, it's thanks to the, the work that was been done before that, that, you know, this notion of critical race theory came out of sort of legal discussions and academic doctrines, as well as anthropological, sociological, historical, stuff like that. It's all, right, it's all wrapped up. The other thing I was gonna say is like, law is an extension of society. Right. And so the notion that the law is some like some some abstract, untouchable, separate realm is ahistorical. Right. And I think it's dangerous for, for us to think that. And so absolutely, you know, critiquing law in, in sort of structural institutional racism in that realm and how law acts to in a very, very, very big way, um, create and reinforce those standards is just Sorry, sure. I feel like um, the, what, the whole CRT thing, all kind of blowing up, is a is a very is a very high pitched, negative, and fervent um, pushback against sort of people just talking about these things more honestly and more openly. Yeah, and I'd like to maybe uh, emphasize something that you pointed out, which is the the question of of what is law, how do, how does it get uh, perceived in society, and I think for me that it was one of the one of the most important parts of critical race theory as I started to use it. Uh, in fact, I started using it, I don't know, 
let's say 10 years ago, probably lo longer. I remember we were doing a lot of activist work and I don't even like calling activist work. We're doing work because <laughs> it's, it's work in general, trying to stand up for what is right. We're, we're doing uh, work around um, human rights, issues of the, of, of the border, and critical race theory was something that was important, you know, because it was a good tool to make sense of how the legal system creates notions of who has a right to be seen as a human being fully as, as a legal concept and who did not. And that conversation took me to law school. Like after I got my, my degree in anthropology, I finished three years later, I, I had applied to law school and I followed through and it was wow. a little bit different than what I thought. I had a much more romantic concept of law school. <laughs> and, and I remember my, uh, as a sidetrack, one of my teachers, uh, he was a good dude. We started talking about Kirk Grace theory a lot. And he was like, you can't yeah. do that. If you want to finish, the, if, I'm saying it's a great talk. It's just not on the exam. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is this is a property class. <laughs> like you have to know the the tenets of property law, and it, uh, and we would and that happened over and over. Like it's like oh this even uh, when I was taking a constitutional uh, law class, it was the teacher was more like that's a really good talk, but it's not on the exam right now because it's all about like tiers of, of responsibility I mean like as a student you just have to get through law school and it's not even in the bar exam so that like as a as a probably newly minted graduate of, with a JD and if you're going to apply for law school uh yeah critical race theory is not anywhere in the bar prep manual huh. so the, anyway so the point being <laughs> is that interesting. Critical, yeah very very bizarre but not bizarre because you you get it I mean that's yeah. literally why critical race theory was born Critical race theory was born at students going to law school. Just how you mentioned it, I think it's such a good concept. I want to pause for to emphasize what I heard from you in your review. So one of the things I heard from you, you said, it's not a coincidence that critical race theory really entered academic discourse after the 60s, in the 70s, because in the 60s, it would be really dangerous to think it, about it. And there just were not. I mean, you think about it, the 1970s is where to put it bluntly, I mean, like, the, you know, the struggles of the 40s, 50s, 60s, building on the struggles of the 30s, 20s, and 10s, building on the struggles of the 1890s, 1880s, 1870s, 1860s, the struggle for abolition, you know, it's all, it's also linked. But I mean, so prior then, to the 1970s, there just weren't that many people with that much melanin in academia, period, full stop, you know, and as that access was was taken was demanded and had to be finally granted in some small way it's like we're gonna blow the doors off this mother <laughs> you know i feel like this but surprisingly that's the shift though because here's what i'm i'm going to project my frustration at being in law school and knowing that there's conversations that are missing mm. and in the 70s i can only imagine this conversation being something to this effect like you you're there you're one of the few out of a, which at that time is a wave of people of color, but it turns out you're like only five. <laughs> right, know. exactly, exactly. It's proportional. It's, it's proportional. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're tripping yeah. out like, whoa, look at all these people of color. You're like, it's only five <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> and then this when you're a, in there, you start realizing there. people aren't talking about race. 
Yeah. It makes sense. At least, I'm just saying, like, least, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to put the puzzles together. Of why mm-hmm. then? And, yeah. not, and if they are talking about race, they're not talking about it in the way that yeah. critical race theory felt right. was well, different. It, it, I feel like they they probably took, they gelled what there were just fewer people doing. So in my mind, it's critical mass, right? So there, I mean, you, you go back, you go, W.B. Dubois, right? This guy is one of the founders of the discipline of sociology. One of the first black people, if not the first black person to get a PhD from some Ivy League school or whatever, right? very much engaged in, I think, conversations of what we would call critical race theory, right? But again, it just wasn't, there wasn't that name for it at that point in time, because he was one guy, and there were others similar to him, but just, but so few and far between that it was just, there was no critical mass, right? I feel like that's what, and in the 70s, there's the opportunity, and again, it's not like, oh, yeah, well, you know, people with melanin got access in the 70s, so we're good. No, it's still, it's, it's still underrepresented wildly right but it was just i feel like there was that that margin that window of opportunity to gel these ideas and put a name to it and really push it in the mainstream academic conversation i feel like in my mind that's my reading of of why that came about in the 70s and maybe not sooner or whatever right yeah and i would even argue that uh to add to this idea of like what's unique of that period i think what's unique is that there is optimism that the law will give you answers. Because I want mm-hmm. to really highlight something you said, which I use a lot in my class, which is trying to unravel the concept of the law mm-hmm. as something that is not outside of us, but it's something that is actually created by us. So there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of things that people talk about when they talk about the law. And there's this concept of like universal rights. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't want to discount it, but I do want to say that mm-hmm. that's not really possible. Like there is no, I mean, there are things that we will say it's universally my right to exist without you hurting me. Yes. But mm-hmm. if I call it the law and I rely on a legal system that I invented, it was not mm-hmm. the universe that put that forward. It was mm-hmm. my society. And I will still stand in, in support mm-hmm. of universal human rights to exist yes. and not be hurt. However, I want to highlight what you said that it is interesting that the law really converts what is arbitrary into natural so that the law said you are white and you're black and that's arbitrary that's really what the concept of the social constructed nature of relying on the legal system to create it um, is about is by saying there is no white and there is no black universally they're only products of a legal divide so that you can say I'm white and you're black, but it's not till you get a legal structure to enforce it, that it becomes real. And, and that's where it gets frustrating because I think a lot of the communities that entered the seventies, I mean, one of the law schools that I went to, the law school, not one, I only went to one law school. Uh, the law school that I went to was born in the 70s. Um, mm. It's People's College of Law. It was born out of people of color fighting to say, you know, we tried the bigger schools, the, the more established white schools. They didn't come originally like that, but well, maybe they did. But they were just mm. definitely perceived as structures that were built to reproduce inequality and not to transform it. And they mm. ended up building this little law school out of many law schools, there was actually a lot. There was a couple of schools throughout California. One of the ones was in, 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 um, in San Francisco. And I think a lot of these students really felt discouraged that the law was so 
not transformational. It was, and, and that's one of the tenets of critical race theory that says the things we take for granted as the pillars of justice, like the constitution, are not built in a neutral space. They're built to uphold racialized inequality. And that, that was not unique in the sense that like, um, I think they, were the, they weren't the first ones to say it, but they were the first ones to put it together that like if Du Bois was saying, you know, the legal structure, the constitution, our place on, on white versus black, you know, needs to be examined. They added the one that says, we do not exist as white or black without the constitution framing our divide. And then the question goes even further, at what point do we give credit to the fact that we've naturalized our divides by the legal implant? And I think that's where it gets complicated for me because I don't think a lot of people want to tolerate the possibility that the things we've taken for granted as normal are just patterns of instruction from the past. <laughs> I feel you. And therein, that is my job as a, as a, as a history professor, as a, as a history instructor. That is our job as educators, right? It's like, well, you may not like it, but them's the breaks. Like you, you, you cannot argue material facts. And that's all. And again, I would say, I don't even know, because I like, I feel like as an historian, right? You, you and I feel like as an academic and as you know, critical thinker, you always want to be cautious of anytime somebody says this was the first ever. Because pretty much always, 99.999% of the time, well, that's the take. That's the take of that time on everything that had been talking about, you know, because I like, I'll go back to the 17, the 1770s, 1780s, these freedmen, freedmen's petitions, right? So enslaved people, melanized, going back to the laws of social construct, technically speaking, there's no such thing as a black or a white person. It was established and codified by law. And then vis-a-vis as a way of like, sort of, anyway, don't even get started. We talked about this, you know, those legal cases, particularly in like North America, in the North American context, in the British colonial context, which, I mean, really um, had an, a disproportionate impact on world history in a lot of ways. But the codification of white and black, quote unquote, so-called people as literally enslavable, not enslaved, like is as simple as that. In my reading of it, it was, it was a, those in power used it very successfully as a way to divide and conquer, right? People who had black and white people, poor people who had a lot more in common than difference, right? And, and it worked frighteningly well, right? But that's, I feel like that in my mind, that's one of the essential, the essential lessons of, and one of the most important reasons for studying something like history, things like anthropology, sociology, which are all wrapped up. Like in history, we're studying anthropology and sociology and, and political science and, and hard science and everything else. And in anthropology and sociology, you're also studying history, you know, so it's all very much mixed together in the milieu. But I feel like one of the most important lessons of studying the human experience and past in any way, shape or form or whatever discipline it is, um, is to learn exactly that. How to recognize what is so-called natural versus what is a social construct. And outside of, I, I mean, you know, I, I think we can say very definitively at this point, outside of eat, sleep, poop, maybe procreate, everything is a social construct, literally everything, you know? And so I feel like that's, man, I really appreciate what you're saying, what you're saying about, about the articulation 
of, of this notion of critical race theory at that moment, that specific historical moment in the 70s. And we think that, oh, the 60s things, in the 70s things calm down. Mm, yeah, relatively speaking, but also not at all. You know, and so these people were in, I think, I feel like it's important to acknowledge that this notion of critical race theory is born of, from the struggles for greater access and representation and equity. Not just, you know what I mean? Not just, not just inclusion, but equity, actual equity, right? Um, and I just, I really appreciate what you're saying, but it's, it, it's, I find it endlessly fascinating the way, you know, and again, I, I right, it, it, this makes people, because it can make some folks really uncomfortable because, you know, these, uh, these norms, right, that we've potentially held our entire lives are all of a sudden upended. You're like, wait a minute. God didn't, you know, or whatever deity didn't just naturally, this isn't just the, you know, the natural order of the universe. And as uh, one of my, be one of my best friends uh, still today, really fortunate, we've known each other most of our lives. I'm, I'm 39. I've known him since I was, it was since we were eight and nine years old, long time. And, you know, he, he ended up going to law school and all that fun stuff. And we have had really, for me, very beneficial and very um, just instructive conversations because and not entirely, he's not like a, a total rigid legalist, but if I had to compare, if I had to put his faith in the legal system as an abstract thing that will do the right thing versus mine, right, he's, his is going to be a little bit more elevated. And so it's been this conversation where I've been, I've always been, and maybe too much in some instances, but I don't know, I, I don't know, I've always been more on the side of like, the law is an extension of society. Is the rule of law necessary? Yes. Standard of accountability. It needs to be universal and everybody held to it equally, regardless of things like race, class, gender, um, you know, how wealthy they are or whatever. Um, but it's not in and of itself some divine and some, some immutable entity, right, that is, that is just a naturally going to do the right thing. It's like, um, it's like I like to say, hey, you know, I found myself saying, I don't know where I picked this up, but just the notion, the idea that the only justice that exists in this world is that which we create with our own two hands. And that is not, uh, uh, that is not to encourage vigilantism <laughs> or you know, taking the law into your own hands as it were, but just to remind ourselves that like you were just saying, you know, it's just these things like black and white people, quote, right? And, and the very real painful life and death material experiences that come with that. But those notions are, it's not a naturally ordained order of the universe, right? It's like you're saying, it's the, it's the result, it's the consequence of a few centuries now, 500 years, right, more or less, about 500 years, give or take, of repeated, conscious, cumulative, sometimes gradual, sometimes very fast, right, sort of changes over time in patterns of behavior and anything, right, I feel like it's an important lesson from studying, from being a student of, 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 of life and the world is anything that we have learned individually and collectively, good or bad, can be unlearned, right, and we want, we want to keep the good like keep the positive, unlearn the negative, right? In some way. And I feel like ultimately to me, that's what the idea of critical race theory means, right? Is just having an examination, right? It's again, like, you know, I've got, I've got European ancestors, I've got East Asian ancestors um, and who knows what, that's just who I know of, you know what I mean? And so it's just, we're all, we're all people. And I feel like that's, we're all human beings equally, whether some folks want to acknowledge it or not, whether some folks want to abuse and exploit other people or not, we're all equal in our shared humanity, as far as I'm concerned. And when I hear the notion of critical race theory, <laughs> I just think, oh yeah, cool. Let's, you know, it's like, it's us just acknowledging that and talking about that openly, you know, I don't know. 
but it's there's a lot there. There's definitely a lot there. Ellie, I'm gonna have to pause here. So I want to thank you for sharing this conversation. Likewise, man. Always a pleasure, T. Thanks for having me. You have just finished sharing your conversation with public historian, educator, writer, Elliot Kim. We shared our thoughts regarding the subject of critical race theory. Our conversation focused on working through the question of what is critical race theory. We expressed our perspectives. Finding a common ground regarding critical race theory as a perspective and analysis that focuses on the law in order to make sense of the way that that the concept of race has been socially constructed and manifested into reality. I hope you find this conversation of interest and relevant and take it to your respective circles to continue. Please feel free to check out the website dreport.org to review past segments. Thank you for tuning in. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again next week.